0: Hey guys, welcome back. Just wanted to let you all know that we have some awesome stuff coming up in the near future. Darren and I will be attending CrimeCon in Las Vegas, Nevada, April 29th through May 1st. So if you're attending, make sure to stop by our table at our network, Cloud10's booth, you know, to pick up some free swag and to chat a bit. We also will be planning a bunch of meetups with a ton of other awesome podcasts. Details to follow in upcoming episodes. Also, we are extremely excited to announce that we will be exhibiting at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas, which is being held August 26th through the 28th. This is a great event with a powerhouse lineup of podcasts in attendance, so look for the link for tickets in the show notes for this episode. Dee and I will also be presenting at the Dark History and Horror Con in Champaign, Illinois on August 19th through the 20th. That's sure to be a horrifically good time. Sorry for the dad joke. The link to their website will also be in the show notes, but enough of the promoting. Let's get back to it. When we were developing this season, we had to figure out how to structure the season in terms of either going chronologically or jumping right in with us presenting certain evidence that we as Garcia's attorneys didn't receive until we were actually retained on the case, and then started getting the discovery from the state. So, Ultimately, what we decided to do is do it as somewhat of a hybrid. So during the early portion of the case, specifically when Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman lost their lives in March of 2008, the investigation went on for five years. During that time, the Omaha police interviewed many potential suspects and tons and tons of potential witnesses came forward. Many of these interviews were recorded. Now... Because I was lead counsel in the case, and obviously I wasn't involved until Dr. Garcia was arrested, and because we will be taking you on the journey from my perspective as his attorney, many of the recordings that would fit very nicely into the early narrative as we move through the case will not be heard until we, as the attorneys, enter the picture. The reason for this is that we want this season to authentically recreate for you The experience of what it is like to represent a client in a capital murder case, where the end result could very well be that your client is executed. And we want to explore all of the attendant pressure and stress that comes along with that. So what that means is that you will hear certain evidence during this terrible saga at the same time that we did, which will help us be able to allow you to enter our minds as we developed our theories and strategies in the case. We think that it's going to make for one hell of a ride. So with that, let's dig in. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode two of season two.
1: Slightly ajar.
0: We left off with Bill Hunter standing at the outside of his home at his back door. At this point, Bill pulls open the screen door and enters his home. Almost immediately upon entering, he sees what appears to be Shirley Sherman laying on the ground, face down in the hallway between the back of the home and the foyer leading to the front door. She was not moving. He quickly moves towards her and sees that there's a massive amount of blood that is pooled around her body. He also notices that there's a knife sticking out of the side of her neck. At this point, his mind is racing as he's trying to process exactly what it is that he's seeing. He looks to his right, and he sees that Tom's backpack is sitting next to the table in the dining nook. Bill immediately screams out, Tom! And runs towards the stairs to the family room in the basement, where he would always find Tom after school. He makes it about halfway down the staircase and bends down to see if Tom is down there on the Xbox. The glow of the TV illuminates the area where Tom would have been sitting. Yet, his son is not there. He screams out, Tom! Again, as he runs back up the stairs. No answer. No answer. Desperately searching for his son, he runs through the kitchen, which leads to the dining room, and he is stopped in his tracks as he sees what is every parent's absolute worst nightmare, his youngest son laying motionless face down near the dining room table, and he too has a knife protruding from his neck. He walks briskly to the kitchen and picks up the phone and dials 911 this is at 5.52 p.m. We will play the 911 tape later in the season, as this was actually the first piece of evidence that we listened to when the discovery came in, and the impact it had on us as we listened was profound, because much can be inferred from 911 calls in general, as they capture a raw, unadulterated moment in time when emotions, in theory, are at their most heightened state. Also, we have posted the crime scene diagram on DefenseDiaries.com for reference. It shows the floor plan of the Hunter's home and the location of both Shirley and Tom's bodies as they were discovered by Bill Hunter on that horrible day. Bill advises the 911 operator that people were killed in his house. The operator asks, who was killed? And Bill answers, two people. The operator asks, who? And Bill answers, his son, age 11. and his housekeeper, who he believes is about 50. She was 57 for the record. Now, at this point, the operator patches in Fire and Rescue. Bill once again states that two people have been killed in his home and supplies them with his address. Fire and Rescue ask for Bill's phone number, which of course he supplies, and they inquire further about the ages of the victim. At this point, Bill informs them that one of the victims is his son, who was age 11, And the other was his housekeeper, who he believed was around 50. Then Fire and Rescue asks, are either one of them awake? Bill responds, no, they're both dead. Dispatcher asks, what happened to them, do you know? Bill answers, it it looks like they were stabbed in the neck with knives. Dispatch, okay, and you just got home, sir? Yeah, I just got home a minute ago, Bill replies. The dispatcher sends out the call to both the fire department as well as Omaha PD and keeps Bill on the phone for another few minutes, asking a series of questions, attempting to elicit more information about what may have happened, and also instructs Bill that if they have any pets, which the hunters do, they have a cat, to get the cat and quarantine it in a room so that it does not tamper with the crime scene. Bill is also instructed not to touch anything and to go stand near the front door, which Bill happens to notice is slightly ajar. So while this call takes place and emergency services and the police are dispatched to the property, the media at large, who always have people monitoring the police scanner, are now aware that an apparent double homicide has occurred in the affluent neighborhood of Dundee. Now, every reporter is in the business of scooping one another, so every news outlet in the greater Omaha area frantically scurries to get reporters on the scene. And they will end up arriving to the scene right behind the cops and the fire department, and they will be reporting the news to the public. Now, I mention this not to state the obvious as this happens with every major crime, but instead to introduce the media as a major player in the story. Because as time passes, the media would end up having a huge impact on how this case would ultimately play out. At this point, Sergeant Donald Fasenick of the Omaha Police Department also hears the call come over the radio and immediately begins making his way to 303 North 54th Street. While en route, he inquires through radio whether or not the Omaha Fire Department has been dispatched to the scene. He's advised that, in fact, they have. So at 5.57 p.m., Sergeant Fasenik hears over the radio that Vander Heiden is at the scene standing by. Now, he, with great haste, gets Vander Heiden on the phone and tells him to proceed to the scene because he doesn't want Omaha Fire entering the scene without Omaha PD. Vander Heiden doesn't tell him that Omaha Fire was already there. Fasenik instructs him to isolate Bill Hunter in a cruiser and reminds him to avoid contaminating the scene as much as possible. Roger that. They terminate the call. At 5.58 p.m., the aforementioned Brian Vanderheiden and John Hennig are the first Omaha police officers to arrive at the Hunter's home. The fire department beat them to the scene, and they inform Vanderheiden that Bill Hunter is sitting in the backyard. Vanderheiden walks down the driveway to the back of the home and finds Bill Hunter pacing around his backyard. Vanderheiden asks Bill to come with them, and they walk to the cruiser that's parked in front of the house. He tells Bill that he wants him to have him wait in his cruiser until other units make it to the scene, at which point he will be taken to the station to make a statement. Bill, of course, complies without any resistance and gets into the back of the car. Now, we assume that everyone listening to our pod is a pretty avid true crime fan, so it's assumed that you know that at the inception of any murder investigation, law enforcement always looks very carefully, first and foremost, at those closest to the victims, And that's because more often than not, if it's not a random killing, the victims typically know their killer. This case is not an exception to the rule, as Bill Hunter will be taken to the station to be questioned for well over an hour by two homicide detectives, which we'll get into a little bit later. Now, Bill doesn't consider himself to be a suspect, as he, of course, knows that he didn't murder his son and Shirley. And further, because he knows that when he entered his house, his son, and surely were already deceased, and he had just arrived home from work when he made the horrific discovery and then called 911 immediately. The cops, on the other hand, they don't know any of this. That being said, the cops are going to have questions for Bill. A lot of them. Their goal at the beginning of the investigation is to try and determine a motive for the murders while simultaneously trying to rule out certain individuals as suspects. This is exactly what is going on during the initial interview with Bill Hunter. I want you to keep in mind that the homicide detectives at the time that they are interviewing Bill Hunter have listened to the audio of the 911 call, and much like I did when I initially listened to it, without knowing any of the other facts, they have started making assumptions. Meanwhile, back at the crime scene, while Vander is securing Bill Hunter and his cruiser, Sergeant Marlene Novotny arrives to assist the officers in clearing the house. All three officers with weapons drawn gain entrance to the house via the front door, which they also notice is ajar. At this point, they don't know whether the door was slightly open at the time Hunter arrived home or whether Hunter himself opened the front door after he called 911. So that little fact is noted in their report. Now, immediately upon entering, with Hennig leading the way, they observe Shirley Sherman's body in the hallway, directly in front of where they are standing. And they immediately see that Tom's body is in the dining room, which is to the left of the front door. Both victims have knife handles protruding from their necks. Officer Vanderheiden, who is the reporting officer, which basically means he ends up writing the report, takes a right into the living room and clears the room. He then carefully proceeds through the living room into the hallway that connects the front and back door, then heads down into the basement in order to clear it. Van der Heiden opens the closet door to the right of the stairs and observes what he believes to be blood seeping through the ceiling from the floor above. Now, he's careful not to disturb the scene and closes the closet door. Remember, the first cops to the scene have one job, and that is to clear the scene before the evidence techs and detectives arrive. These guys are not collecting the evidence, so they're taking extra care not to contaminate the crime scene by touching things or disrupting the scene in any way. Sometimes, however, this is near impossible to do. And defense attorneys oftentimes feast on these mishaps during trial. Vander then heads upstairs to clear the four bedrooms and observes nothing of note, including any other persons. He then goes outside to establish a perimeter around the property. Vanderheiden is then relieved by another officer and notes that he made all efforts to remove any dirt and mud that may have collected on his size 9 boots prior to entering the residence in the event that he left boot prints anywhere inside of the home. Sergeant Scott Timberly arrives to the scene at around 6 p.m. He advises a throng of media that is already there and is frothing at the mouth for information that they are to set up camp at the south end of Hunter's Block. At that point, a woman named Mary Rommelfanger approaches the sergeant as he is giving instructions to the media. She tells him that she has important information regarding somebody that she regarded as suspicious in the neighborhood earlier. Timperley gets her number and advises her that somebody will get in contact with her soon. By the time Sergeant Facenic arrives at the scene at 6.15 p.m., officers Wendy Dye and Lieutenant McGee have already arrived at the scene and are assisting in clearing the house. He notices that the media has arrived in droves, circling like vultures, albeit a good distance away from the crime scene. He's extremely appreciative that someone had already handled them. Facenic sees that both Medic 34 and Engine 34 are standing by. Facenic gets out of his squad and walks up to the paramedics and firefighters that are standing by, and he asks them collectively, who has entered the house? They all raise their hand. All eight of them. So much for not contaminating the crime scene? Ouch. Vecenic chooses not to add to the problem, so he doesn't enter the scene, but instead approaches the lone figure sitting in the back of a cruiser, equipped with a cage. Vecenic opens the door to the cruiser, and instructs Bill Hunter to get out. Which... He does. He relocates Hunter into the back of his squad, which does not have a cage, and explains to him that this is standard procedure to isolate witnesses until they are interviewed. Well, that's pretty thoughtful, considering that this poor man has just discovered his youngest son has been brutally murdered and is in absolute shock. As this is occurring, Officer Hennig approaches them. Vecenic tells Hennig to transport Bell to the station to be interviewed. He orders Hennig to have Bill sit in the front of the cruiser with him. Before Bill and Hennig leave, Fasenik asks Bill some questions about Claire being in Hawaii for a medical conference, where Tom goes to school, and how and when he got home. Bill, of course, does his best to answer all of Fasenik's questions. Bill's then left alone for a bit. So at that point, he tries to reach out to Claire to tell her about the unspeakable horrors of the day. Her phone goes right to voicemail, as it's around 10 a.m. in Hawaii at this point, and she is in one of the medical conferences. Bill's sons, Rob and Jeff, have also been blowing up his phone, but he's just not prepared to have those conversations quite yet. So Bill sits quietly, trying to wrap his mind around what is happening right now. It all feels surreal, as if he's observing himself from outside of his own body, thinking, this can't be happening. Officer Jason Julian arrives at the scene around 6.15 p.m. as well. He is instructed to maintain the northeast perimeter of the scene. He is approached by no less than five potential witnesses, all of whom believe that they have something crucial to report. Now, I'm going to be giving you a bit of a hint here as we are digging into the narrative. If I mention someone's name specifically early on, that's because they will turn out to be key witnesses. And conversely... If I don't name them, then they didn't end up having any valuable information. Keeping that in mind, the five good citizens who approached Julian are not going to be named. By 6.40 p.m., a perimeter has been secured around the entire Hunter property and reaches as far as both the north and south ends of the blocks as crime tape keeps both the media and onlookers at bay. What the cops don't realize at this point is that several of the concerned citizens that are milling about around the perimeter of the crime scene are busy exchanging notes with one another as to what they had seen leading up to the murders and all of these folks are eager to tell omaha pd what they know one of these people is of course paul Medine, the guy who was watching intently as the stranger walked up to the hunters home earlier in the afternoon now, Medine is able to flag down Officer Perkins, who's helping keep the perimeter secure. Medine tells Perkins what he observed earlier in the day, including that the man that he saw was between 5'8 and 5'9 with a dark complexion, describing him either as Italian or Arabic with a heavy build. Medine recalls that the man was wearing a cheap, ill-fitting suit and had a satchel or a briefcase with him. Medine cannot say with certainty that the man entered the house as he didn't see it happen with his own eyes, but he also didn't see him walking away from the home either. Perkins advises Medine that somebody will be following up with him in the very near future as well. Another witness is patiently waiting for Medine to finish his discussion with Perkins so that she can tell him what she saw. Arlene Adelson finally gets her opportunity. And her description of the stranger is substantially similar to Medine's description. Dark complexion, 5'7 to 5'8, dark suit. Neither Medine or Adelson saw a vehicle that appeared to belong to the man, as they both viewed him on foot. Perkins gets both of their numbers and passes the information on to his sergeant. It appears that a suspect, complete with a relatively thorough description of what he looked like, starting to develop. If it seems early on that the entire Omaha Police Department is reporting the scene of this double homicide, well, this is an all-hands-on-deck type of case that occurred in one of Omaha's most desirable neighborhoods. Everyone wants to see this case closed as soon as humanly possible. I don't want to get you panicked by the sheer amount of names that we are throwing at you, because once homicide takes the case over, the herd thins, and we will be dealing with a much more manageable number of cops. But for right now, you'll just have to deal with it. So at approximately 6.56 p.m., Officer Hennig gets into his cruiser, discreetly turns on his cruiser's camera. Now Bill Hunter is sitting next to him. Hennig notes in his report that Bill didn't say a word to him during the ride to the station, but instead sat silently with his head hanging low. And he was sulking. Really? He just found his son murdered. If there was ever a time that sulking was appropriate, this would be that time. Hennig also indicates in his report that he did not observe Hunter actually crying at any time since he arrived at the scene. Remember, the cops always look at those closest to the victims first. So you better believe that while Omaha PD will not openly refer to Bill Hunter as a suspect at this juncture, they are collectively, and have been since he placed the 911 call, very carefully observing and noting his behavior and demeanor. At this point, Bill Hunter's apparent lack of outward emotion is causing some of these cops to wonder, what if? Now, at this point, the scene has been completely secured. Yet, Omaha PD is not sending the evidence text into process because they want to secure a warrant for the premises. Now, if you're wondering why they are doing this, when Bill Hunter clearly gave them the authority to enter and search the premises, it's a good question. And the answer is this. At this very early stage of the investigation, looking at the situation objectively, Bill Hunter had both opportunity, meaning that he had access to the scene, and potentially the ability to commit the crimes coupled with his 911 call and his interactions with the police, which, at the very least, the cops view as unusual. These factors make Bill Hunter a potential person of interest initially. And the fact that Claire Hunter was not available to consent to the search as she's in Hawaii, at least for the immediate future... The police, and specifically Don Klein, the county attorney of Douglas County, believe that the safest and most prudent move is to secure a search warrant. That way, down the road, they will not have to deal with any issues with regards to the searches. At around 6.50 p.m., Officer Hennig and Bill Hunter arrive at the police station, and Bill is placed into an interview room. At this point, he has still not been able to get a hold of Claire. In the meantime, Detective Doug Harout is assigned the task of conducting the interview with Bill Hunter. Before going in, Harout is briefed on what they know at this point, which is that there are two victims, one 11-year-old male and one 57-year-old female. Both died of apparent stab wounds to the neck, and both deaths are being treated as homicides. Harout is also made aware that the man in the interrogation room is the father of the deceased child, and the that he in fact discovered the bodies upon arriving home from work. Before Harout goes into the room with Hunter, he also listens to the 911 call. At approximately 8.30 p.m., Harout enters the room along with another officer in order to begin the questioning of Bill Hunter. Harout initially tells Hunter that he is not there as a suspect and confirms with him that he is there voluntarily to make a statement And to provide information, that is it. Now, the question of whether Harout should have read Bill Hunter his rights prior to the interview is an interesting one. As I noted earlier, the cops at this point have very little information regarding what happened at the house that afternoon. And at this point, they are unsure of the time of death other than it had to have occurred between the time Thomas got home from school and before Bill Hunter made the 911 call. So the initial timeline is that the murders must have occurred sometime between 3.20 p.m. and 5.52 p.m. So to go into the room and to immediately read Bill Hunter's rights may have put Bill Hunter on the defensive. And he may have lawyered up, even if he's completely innocent of all the crimes. And that wouldn't have allowed Harout to get the crucial information that they need at the beginning of the investigation. So in lieu of reading him his rights he confirms that he is voluntarily speaking with the police. Now, the following is the beginning of the interview of Bill Hunter by Detective Doug Harrell.
1: Hi. William? Yes. Mark Myavich? This is my partner, Doug Harrell. Okay? We're with the homicide unit. And... Uh, we're going to hopefully figure out what's going on tonight, okay? Um, why don't you kind of explain to me, first of all, um, I got your name as, as William Hunter, okay? Um, I understand that you're a physician? Yes. All right. And is that for Creighton Med Center? Yes. Okay. Um, I understand that your wife is out of town. Okay. Okay, and what is your wife's name? Claire. Claire. C L A I R E. Okay. What is Claire's date of birth? Um, uh, yeah, fifty-two. Okay. And is she reachable by phone or anything well, like that? That's what I was trying to yes. Okay, have you made contact with her? Okay. She had it forward, so I think she was in a. She's in a meeting. She probably had it turned off. Too. Okay. And one of the things I can do, and I don't know how comfortable with what you want done as far as letting her know, um, Where where is she in Hawaii? Uh, it, it's, it's on Kauai. Okay. And uh, I think the Grand Mary
2: uh, okay. in Conference Center Hotel, uh,
1: yeah, I, I don't know exactly, but. Okay. Try and organize with the police out there to make contact with her. Okay. If, if you're more comfortable with that, if you want to talk to her, if you want us to talk to her, whatever. Okay. Is um, she, she have you trying to get a hold of her on a cell phone out there? What's her cell phone, no, phone number? I don't know. Actually. Okay. Honestly, it's on, and they confiscated my cell
2: phone. So it's, it's programmed on, into your phone? It's on there. It, on contacts, it's the first number. Okay. What was the hotel name again? I think it's like the Grand Mariela. Um, comp, hotel or, or resort, and hotel or something like that in Kauai. In Kauai. Again, the, the brochure is sitting on the kitchen uh, island. I think where the meeting is, uh, contact numbers.
1: Okay.
2: And there's five hours difference in time. Yep. And she's in meetings. Well, she she gets out about one o'clock their time. At one one thirty or so. I usually call her. I've been calling her around 10. It was,
1: you know, like 5 there. Okay. So, maybe. Yeah. But she should have her phone on after the meeting. And you've left her a message on her no, cell phone? No, I just... You just said to call you? Yes. Okay. And and we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get okay. there, as, as far as, as talking to her. Okay. Now, I want to kind of start out very broad here. Um who is in the house with you? Who lives there with you? It's me, my wife, Claire, and Thomas. And Thomas is your son? Yes, the, the 11-year-old. Okay. And is there somebody else that lives in the home, too? Well, not regularly. I mean, uh, my, I have a 19-year-old, 20-year-old son in Lincoln,
2: University of Nebraska. Okay. Jeffrey. And then he's a student down there? He's a student down there. Do you have his phone number? Yes, I think it's also on there, but I think it's 740. You see, when you don't dial, you lose It's very easy. It's, uh... 7 I guess so. Okay. Same last
1: name? Yeah.
2: And have you tried to reach out to him? No, I haven't. And then I have a son in the Tacoma, Washington. He's 25. His name is Timothy
1: and his cell phone is on there too okay and have you tried to reach out to him at all okay I mean I was trying
2: to get out of my wife's then I was going to call her okay get the kids back the 303 okay. number it's 303 Six. right and even though that's that area code is Denver that's where his, he lived for a while and that's where his cell phone that's where was. his program is in that's uh, the call And I have a uh, son, Robert. He's 22. He's in New York City. His phone number is in here. He has a New York number now. Robert,
1: Robert. Is it under Rob? Rob. Yeah. yeah. I understand that you have a housekeeper as well. Well, a cleaning lady. whatever Okay, you she comes in once a week for about four hours. Thanks.
2: Hello, Shirley. Shirley. Shirley, I don't. I can't remember. Her name. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Rob, but that's that's fine. Her purse is on. So her
1: purse is in the house. It okay, kind of Okay. Um. And is she white female, black female, or black female? Yeah. And how long has she been with you? Well,
2: probably. I, my wife arranges all those things. I think about uh, 18 months I think, uh, or so. Uh and then, um,
1: and is she uh, a good associate? I mean, is she oh, a yeah. I mean, fantastic we've, lady? I mean, we've, I mean, she's been very, very good, very helpful, and very I mean, accommodating. Okay, we haven't does had she, any trouble. With does that. she, uh, does she watch the youngest no, from time to time? Usually, not. No, um,
2: but my son usually comes home from school about the time she leaves. So they they
1: cross paths. But, you know. Now is today her regular scheduled day to be here? Okay. And does she have a key to your house? She lets herself in and out, and she secures everything. Ever had any issues with her things missing, nothing like that? Is she married? Uh
2: I'm not sure what her marital status is. I think she she lives alone now. She I mean she may have a daughter. She has kids. Okay. A uh, growing kids. I'm not Adults? She never yes. I she never I've never heard her mention about a husband, like, I think she's either divorced or, okay. or something like that.
1: But my wife would know more. Mm-hmm. Does she ever um, bring personal issues to the house? No.
2: My wife's a physician too, so sometimes they talk some medical stuff. Okay.
1: okay. And where does your your youngest son go to school? Uh, King Science Center. In what grade? Sixth. Sixth grade? Sixth. Okay, and how does he get to and from school? Bus. He takes There's the bus? OPS bus. What time does school get out of, King? Uh, a little
2: before three, and he usually gets home on the bus about 3.30. To me, between three... 20, 20, 20 25 somewhere
1: around there. has he talked to any about having any problems on the bus at all not that I, no, no not absolutely not. Okay. He usually he has a key and he lets himself in does he carry a cell phone or anything like that yeah, to make yeah. contact with you he usually has a cell phone. Okay. Uh,
2: today I because uh, yeah he usually has a cell phone. Did he have it today? I, I don't think uh, no, you assume he should have. Yeah, okay. he should have because I mentioned when I when he went to the school, that he had his keys? And things, so, but he frequently does, and I didn't notice this, but yeah, I, I did notice that his backpack. When I first walked in, I was, I saw Shirley, and I, and I immediately wanted to know where Tom was. And I noticed Tom's backpack there, so I knew he had been home. Okay. And right he, inside the entry door? Well, No, it's right. Well, it, it's right by the, dine, the kitchen table, which is just a couple steps from the entry door. Okay. And usually the cell phone, and I didn't notice this, but the cell phone is, usually takes it out as Bob and puts it
1: on the kitchen table. Okay. And it might still be there. We haven't been out there, so... Okay. His cell phone is in there, too. So. Okay. Um, let me write that down real quick. Okay. What, what we're doing is, uh, Thomas, Thomas, what we're doing is basically covering the legal angles right now, and we're writing a search warrant for the residents. Um, that is simply because of the fact that your wife is out of town. Okay. Um, we're in the process of having a judge get that okayed, and then we're going to go into the house and take a look around and see what's there. At that point, we'll know more about what is possibly missing. And, what isn't. and I didn't, you know, I was kind of shocked. I didn't even, but
2: it didn't particularly look out of, you know, anything. I didn't go upstairs at all. Okay. On the ground floor, when I was running around trying to find them, uh, things seemed pretty much in order. It, it's a typical you know, middle of Shirley's work, so there was some paper sat or some
1: cleaning stuff, cleaning around. stuff out Okay. There. But other than that, it looked... Nothing nothing that when you walked in absolutely glared at you That's that it's right. missing. Right. Okay. But then again,
2: you were only on the and, and, and I did well, and I the first thing I did because when I walked I came in the back door. We usually come in the back door. Okay. And so when I came in, Shirley's car was there, so I knew she was there. And I was kinda of surprised because she's usually gone, but sometimes where um, was, was that parked? In Is the back. In behind the house? In behind the house. You know, we have a little turnaround in the back. In the back, okay. And she's there. And uh, the garage door was down. And so when I came off the driveway, I hit the garage door opener, And I didn't see her. I wasn't expecting her home. So when I went to get it, I saw her car. Normally we use, we have a very narrow Place back there, so I I stopped right in the driveway. Kind of a tight fit, and 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 Shirley would have to back up into the garage. It was one space open in the garage, okay. so she would turn around, and I would pull in, and so I did that. Uh, uh, when I came in, Shirley was right there in the in the hallway between the back door and the front foyer, and so the first thing in stairs to the basement are right there so the first thing I you know, I just said where's Tom? You know, and I think I yelled out Tom and I went and he's usually when I get home about this uh, time he's usually downstairs in our family room on uh, either you know, doing a you know, video game or something like that so I, I kind of ran down about halfway down the stairs and looked and he wasn't there. Okay. And, so that then I, I ran around uh, uh, the kitchen. Okay. So, but nothing
1: seemed particularly. Is annoying. that where Tom is right now? Is in the kitchen? Yeah, he's in the dining. Room. He's in the dining room. Okay. Ask you Did you happen to notice if there was any broken windows in the house?
2: Um, the back door did it appear? Uh, the back door to? looked just like it surely was there. I mean, the, the it was open, wide okay. open. Back door. And this, you know, the storm door was there, but and she had had she had already put out some garbage uh, bags, okay. So it's a typical thing if she's working going in and out of the back. The nine one one operator told me to open, unlock the front door. So I went to the front door. It had, it was already open. It was okay. cracked about an inch. Okay. And so I didn't touch it. But that was that is uh, that that was be highly unusual. Usually
1: we have that shut and locked. Okay, so you didn't touch the door. No. no. Okay. Do you remember oh, if anybody okay. else touched it? Not that I know. Well, the fireman came. Do you remember if they had on gloves or anything? Uh, Most of them. I think, well,
2: at least a couple of them had the blue neoprene. Okay. Um, After they, uh, let's see, and I went out to the front and sat on the front porch for a little while. I mean, uh, they, uh, and uh, so I think I might have pushed open the storm door. That's fine. Okay. You know, to go out because the firemen didn't, you know, I greeted the firemen? Up on the front porch.
1: All right. Okay. Do you ever open that front door? Yeah, oh, we open, it but up. you do go in and out of it. It's not your typical. entrance. It's not, not our either. typical
2: entrance. Uh We get it. You know, we get the mail, uh, and if it's a nice day, we might be sitting out there on the porch. But uh, usually, we keep it shut. I mean, it's it. It is usually shut and. At this time of the day it would always be locked because Tom doesn't unlock I mean, typically. And he comes in the back door all the time. He comes in the back door. We that that's our main door and we have our keys fit that okay. door.
1: Have uh, do you what, what kind of things do you store in the house? Do you store money in the house? Do you have a safe? Um, I mean, guns? I know. So, um
2: have any big, we don't have have much cash in the house. Uh, My wife has a fair amount
0: of jewelry. So as you just heard, Bill Hunter describes what he found waiting for him upon arriving at home, and exactly what he did after making the unthinkable discovery. Her route then begins to establish Hunter's personal timeline— inquiring about when he left work and what happened thereafter. Now, interviewing a grieving parent directly after they've discovered that their child has been killed is an incredibly difficult and delicate endeavor for any detective, and Harout handles it as well as anybody could. He certainly does not have an accusatory tone when he's asking his questions. But Bill Hunter's incredibly calm demeanor considering the circumstances has to be sticking in his craw. Approximately 20 minutes into questioning, Bill's phone rings. Officer Majizic, who is holding onto Hunter's phone, tells Bill the number that is calling. And what you are about to hear is the conversation between Bill Hunter and his wife, Claire. Both cops remained in the room at the beginning of the call and then left. They are, of course, watching the conversation on a closed-circuit monitor in another room just as they observed Hunter while he was sitting in the interview room prior to the questioning. Much can be learned from these seemingly innocuous situations, and law enforcement is trained on what to look for from individuals when they are in custody. Are they fidgeting? Do they appear abnormally nervous? Are they pacing, crying, sleeping, looking at the camera in the room, sitting calmly, staring straight ahead? These are all Tells of sorts, and they are useful for law enforcement down the road when evaluating whether or not they like someone for a crime. So let's listen to the call between Bill and Claire Hunter, keeping in mind that we can only hear Bill's side of the conversation. You will have to allow your mind to imagine what Claire is saying and doing on the other end of the call.
2: you open it up, it tells
1: you
2: what it is. Two hours. Oh, open it here. That's my daughter. Yep. What's you, your daughter's name? That's my it wife. That's your wife. Now, okay. um,
1: what do you want to do with her? Do you <laughs> want to go ahead and talk to her? Yes, why don't I mean, I this guess, isn't yeah. typically the way we like to do things. I, know, I, I don't like What
0: should I say? It, it, Well if okay, you feel comfortable we'll do it. I'll talk to her um but if if you want to make it more of a personal thing you can do, we'll give you the time to do it real quick Yep.
1: and then if you want to tell her and then we can try to explain what it. should i say i mean she needs to get well tell her the, tell her first of all that she needs to make arrangements to come yeah, on yeah. um, the Memory been uh, something that happened in the house i don't want to make her not know what happened but I mean, if you feel comfortable with telling her what you've seen, that's fine. Go and have funny. a seat. You don't have to leave here. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just stay here. And, and, and we'll, we'll actually bounce out of the room for you to give you that, unless you want us to stay here for you. I'll, I'll, yeah, why not? Okay. okay, go ahead, and, and then we'll come back in
2: a little bit. Claire. Hello, how are you? Well, Tom has been stabbed to death in the house, and we don't have any idea, and so was so Shirley. So when... So when I came home, the uh, both of them were were dead. So I don't know, you if... know. Well, I don't know it. If... Well, okay, okay, I am too. Please have me kind of isolated while they why while they are trying to get. Uh, uh, you know, we're actually we're, I'm, well, no no, we're right, I'm a witness but no, I'm not a suspect because they've been dead some time and I've been, I was at work all day. We don't know what happened but I know it must have been after 3.30 because Tom was home I don't know what's going on she was there and she was in the middle of things okay, now, now what we need to do well, I have no idea. We have no idea. I have no idea. Okay. Right now, the place is crawling. You know, all the police. What you need to do, if you can, is try to, if you can, get back. Okay. 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 Did someone call you? Did someone else call you? Okay. Well, I, I tried to I tried to call earlier, you know, and you had your you were still in your meeting. All right, All right. All right, Well, that's because I know. I don't, I know, I know, I I know Rob gets on the internet, you know, too fast, but I I don't know, you know, and they see, they want to get a statement from me first. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. That's all right. That's okay. I, I understand. I understand. Well, I guess. I know I haven't been able to get a hold of anyone. Uh, and see if Rob can get, yes, I need Rob. Okay. And how about, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Right.
0: Now, if you're thinking, wow, that was weird, unsettling, well, you're not alone. Bill Hunter's matter-of-fact clinical demeanor is incredibly off-putting. It certainly doesn't imply he's guilty of anything. But think of it from a cop's perspective. I'd hazard to guess that 99 out of 100 parents in Bill Hunter's position would be hysterical at this juncture. Alternating between hyperventilating, sobbing fits, and trying to compose themselves, or simply being unable to proceed with questioning until they have had some time to try to come to grips with their new reality. I personally would have been an absolute puddle, needing to be mopped up off the floor, and I would be inconsolable and out of my mind, furious that someone had killed my child. But I'm not Bill Hunter. Bill Hunter on this particular day didn't appear to be any of those things. Granted, as a pathologist, he literally deals with death on a daily basis. But this, this is much, much different than a clinical evaluation of an unknown corpse. The point being that if I was Detective Doug Harout, I'd be thinking, we need to look into Hunter's alibi immediately based exclusively on the fact that he appears to be devoid of any emotion so while bill hunter is being interviewed an affidavit has been prepared and brought before judge white over at the douglas county courthouse he grants the warrant and signs it at about 8:40 p.m word is sent from the courthouse to the waiting detectives and the evidence techs over at the hunter house that the warrant is en route at approximately 9:10 p.m., Detective Derek Moise and 3 Evidence Techs enter the Hunter house to begin the arduous task of collecting evidence and trying to determine what happened to Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman earlier that day. Now, Derek Moise is a name that you will hear frequently throughout the season as he would end up being one of the lead detectives on both the Hunter-Sherman case and the Brumbeck case that takes place five years down the road. Moise and the techs will be going through every square inch of the hunter's home in search of any clues or evidence that they can unearth. Will there be any incredibly important forensic evidence left behind? A DNA profile? A fingerprint? A hair? A footprint? Blood? Fiber? Anything that will lead the police to the killer These were two killings that were committed with knives, which is not an easy way to kill someone, let alone two people. Unlike what you see on TV and the movies, people are not standing idly by while somebody impales them with a blade. No, they're screaming, running, thrashing, fighting back, trying to grab the knife or the arm of the killer. It's a knife fight. And unless the victim is asleep when they are stabbed, it's an incredibly violent act. So the odds that some form of forensic evidence has been left behind by the killer seems to be in the favor of law enforcement. As one thing is known at this point, that the killer did not take the time to clean up the crime scene. Let's dig into the evidence that is found on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hi, guys. It's Darren. Um, if you noticed during the interviews with Dr. Hunter, there were a couple of times where the audio fades out real quickly or one time when it, it sounds reversed. That's because I faded out the audio and reversed the audio to just to protect uh, the phone numbers of the people involved, the Hunter family. That's it hope you're enjoying season two thus far. We're really excited about it. And uh, thanks for
1: listening.